Welcome to another edition of On the Inside Track. How do we know which choices are ours to make? How do we know the best choices to make? Join me as my guests and I explore defining moments from there to here. I'm Debbie Hazelton on the Inside Track. Hi, and welcome again to another edition of On the Inside Track. My guest this week is someone many of you have known from ACB Radio Interactive and from numerous things that he has brought to us on ACB Radio Mainstream. Radio has been a passion for him ever since he was a little boy. He's been out there doing lots of things in the business world, in advocacy. He is one of those tenacious people who is a self-starter, who's not willing to just take the world the way in which it's handed to him. He's got a great deal of determination, tenacity, and passion. I'm talking about my friend Rick Morin. Hi, Rick. It's great to be here, Deb. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. You really talk to the community. The whole community thing. Now, when I was in college, the college radio station was my refuge and developed a real sense of community there. And it was interesting because here I was, the only disabled person, but in a community of people, many of which were struggling with their sexual identity. Just had some really, really deep and close friendships with these folks and and related to a lot of these folks in terms of what we were struggling with in terms of being different and fitting in with everybody else. (laughs) I actually had my life threatened a couple of times because I was the general manager of the campus radio station. And by the time I graduated, I was the only white guy left on the station. Everybody else was black. And And so who was threatening you? Was it black people or was it it white people? No, it was black people. And it was this one guy, Kakai Alamayu. Mm. Kakai, Kakai Alamayu. Sounds like a chant. <laughs> it was so funny because I found his student ID and his real name was Eric Reynolds. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and, and so I get this phone call in the middle of, you know, the middle of the night threatening me, don't, you know, be careful that we're going to, we're just going to rub your face all over the sidewalk and da, 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 and, you know. And uh, so I go to see him the next day, and I, I went up to him and said, hey, Eric. And he just went berserk. And, and I said, you don't have a, a monopoly on be, being discriminated against. And I started to tell him a story. And, and this story actually had, I don't know if I ever told you about this, Deb, but this actually has a lot to do with, with where my career went and, and, and how my life progressed. I went to Northeastern University. It was a co-op school. And I had very good grades. I was pushing like a 3-9 QM, but could never get a co-op job because I'd get one interview and they'd see on my resume that I was legally blind and they would just eliminate me after the first interview. I decided that I was going to take the blindness thing off my resume and, and ask a whole bunch of questions during the interview. Let me determine whether or not my not being able to, to do certain things visually was going to be an issue. And if I felt it wasn't going to be an issue based on the job requirements, I never brought it up. So, so I went from having no job to competing for the best 
marketing job the school had. I was a marketing major, and I beat out like 12 other people for this absolutely fabulous marketing job with mobile oil in uh, White Plains, New York. So I go to White Plains, New York, and first day on the job, I'm sitting there, and my job was supposed to just keep track of what the, what the competition was charging for a gallon of gas. And we wanted to make sure that we were always within a penny of the competition's gallon of gas. And I said, what a lame job this is. But I'm sitting there, and my boss walks over, who I hadn't met up to this point. He was a marketing vice president, throws his car keys at me and says, come on, you're, you're going to go drive me to the golf course, and you're going to caddy me. <laughs> and uh, and I, I said, oh, God, here we go. So, so I went into his office, and I said, sorry, I'm not going to drive anywhere because I don't have a license. What do you mean you don't have a license? Well, I'm legally blind. What do you mean you're legally blind? And I see his face go crimson red, and he says, get the hell out of here, slams the door. I could hear him calling, calling the school, threatening the school with all kinds of stuff. This kid committed fraud. We would have never hired him had we known about this. Da, 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 da. Of course, this is all pre-ADA. This was back in 1976. But this incredible sense of calm came over me when all this happened. I went from thinking this was going to be the worst thing that ever happened to me to just this sense, this unbelievable calm kind of engulfed me. And I felt like this whole thing is going to work out to my advantage. So didn't know how, but just just felt that way. So I, I go back within the, within the first day of of being on the job, I was on an airplane going back to uh, to Boston, and I think they made me pay for my own plane ticket, if I recall correctly. But I go back to school. Everybody's trying to get me thrown out of school, mm, and be, because I mean, Mobile had uh, was giving uh, Northeastern a lot of money, and this guy was threatening to pull some of that money back. Not not that he had any influence on on what they were on, but but he said he he would make their life miserable and so on and so forth. So. The uh, there was one co-op advisor, Ernie Barrasso, <laughs> and uh, he got renamed Ernie B O, and you can <laughs> take it from there. <laughs> um, but but so, anyways, I I go back, and next thing I know, I have a co-op job. All of a sudden, they put me on a co-op job, and I was making more money in this co-op job than I I would have made at mobile. And I'm thinking, God, this is really strange. But I, I had a co-op job working for a government contractor, and uh, so I come back, and then I I contact the labor department, and. Uh, the labor department was all excited about going after them for a discrimination claim until they found out that I made more money. And they said, you know, they actually rendered you more employable by the fact that you made more money. So you really don't have a claim. And they did and that I, on purpose. I and, I, and I said, those sons of, mm-hmm. I was, you know, just so, I, I said, okay, this is the way the game is played. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and I, of course I was a business major and, and I, and I just kind of chuckled saying, okay, this is the way the, the, the game is made. So I'll get even. So I went up to the campus uh, newspaper and I sat down with the editor of the newspaper and I told him a story about how this person in the third party had been absolutely screwed over by the co-op department. Um, and uh, a blatant case of discrimination and was talking in the third party through the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so... They finally looked at me and they said, who was it? Who was it? I said, me. Okay, so the, the next issue of the campus newspaper had this huge headline. It was like all the way up to the fold, you know, uh, co-op department screws blind person, something like that. <laughs> 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 
and, and I said, hey, this is this is neat. This is fun. You know, this is my senior year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get a call from the dean of university administration, and he he says, come up and see me. So I said, okay. His name was Dean Kennedy. I had done a lot of work with him at the radio station. And so he sits down with me, and he says, I'm going to talk to you at two levels. I'm going to talk to you as a friend, and I'm going to talk to you as a school administrator. Let's get the school administrator stuff out of the way first. He said, why in hell are you making my life so miserable? God, I would have thought that was the friend piece. And... and <laughs> <laughs> So I really didn't mean to, but believe me, uh, my life has, has been made miserable in this whole process, too. So so I guess we can, if we're keeping a scorecard, we can call that one even. And uh, I was always a bit of a smart ass even back then. <laughs> <laughs> so then he says, now, okay, talking to you as a friend, what's your top priority right now? And I said, my top priority right now is to, is to graduate and to get a job. And he said, well, tell you what, he said, you're right, we did you wrong. So I'll never say that officially, but but you were wronged by the school. Uh, He said, I'll make you grad placement's number one priority to find work. Hmm. So I said, well, that's pretty cool. So I go down and I see this, they had a grad placement, and he has this interview with this company called EDS, Ross Perot's company. And uh, so he sets me up with this interview, and I go go to this interview, and there's 30 people in a room, and they're giving a, a slide presentation about chess pieces and how great a, a company this is and how they differentiate themselves based on the fact that they're so good with people and they really understand people, and it's people first, and people first in terms of customer, but also people first in, in terms of employees and da-da-da-da. So all these people pair off for interviews, and all of a sudden there's me and this other guy left in the room, and he says, you can't be Rick Moran. And I said, why not? He said, it says here, because you're blind. And he says, yeah, you don't have a dog and you don't have a cane. Oh, jeez. And you weren't singing either, right? I take no, it. No, no. And I didn't have a cup and I wasn't <laughs> singing. And so I looked at him and I, I said, everything that you guys said in this presentation was totally wrong. I explained to him that I that I was Rick Morin and, and the guy was so embarrassed. And the first half hour of the interview, I was interviewing him. It was as if I was on the campus radio station interviewing this guy for a broadcast and finally he he finally said half hour into it he said stop 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 it's my turn to interview you so i've always been one where things have just kind of fallen into place but i'm i'm a big believer that you know it's not luck i mean it's it's you know a lot of it is um you know how you just take control Mm -hmm. of things and and how you make the the best of situations Um, sure growing up i did not have any blind services at all the whole time I was growing up. I was legally blind all my life, undiagnosed until I think I was a freshman in high school. Undiagnosed only because my parents didn't want to bother with it. I mean, dad had the problem, but you know he, he ran his own business, so he figured, hey, if I can run my own business, then I don't need to really do anything for my kids. And I was always driven just to, to succeed despite what people's expectations may have been for me. Was there um, anyone in your corner who said to you, I'm here for you, Rick, I know you can do it? No, not really. When I look back, my earliest memories were just me being alone. Something that, that kept me going was I, I decided that at a very early age I was going to work. And I started working at McDonald's at age 15, developed a, some sense of, of self-worth just by virtue of, of working and getting a paycheck, mm-hmm. which I 
would then turn around and spend all my money on 45 RPM records. <laughs> a setup uh, for radio, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, ra- radio has been, has been part of this all along. The motivation was you're never going to be anything in your life. You're never going to succeed. You're, you know, you're worthless. You're this, you're that. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like, uh, okay, uh, you know, and, and that was my dad. And, and, uh, and it's like, well, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to show you all wrong. Um, 13 years in Catholic school. That was not exactly a nurturing experience. I was an altar boy, one priest who I used to say mass with all the time. We try to get us drunk after mass and all of that stuff that's talked about. I, mm-hmm. I've, I've experienced it firsthand. But uh, yep. so much of what I did was self-starting stuff. I started working at McDonald's. It, it just was fun. Part of it was just self-discovery. I never thought I'd be able to do any of this stuff. I never thought I was capable of getting out in the workforce and, and mm-hmm. doing anything and, and really being able to contribute because of my eyesight and, and because of what I was conditioned to think. I got in there and I, I found out that I could be you know, quite productive and, and did quite well and ended up working at McDonald's for like six years all through college. And At one point, I thought that was going to be my career path. Were you managing? Yeah, I was a crew chief and then a, then a shift manager and uh, used to run the grill. And I've still got calluses all over my hands, which were from working the grill. So McDonald's was a place where you knew you could do it and you got through college. And did you like going to college? Yeah, I did great in college. The campus radio station was my refuge. I developed some great relationships there, great sense of community there. I ended up being the general manager of the campus radio station for the last three years I was there. One of the things that I tell people all the time who are considering going to college is this whole co-op experience is a very, very good experience for for people with with visual impairments. One of the major obstacles we all have in getting employment is not having experience. Mm -hmm. When you go to a co-op school, you've got a relatively safe environment where you can take some risk and get out there into the job market and pretty much see what you can do, build a resume to some extent. And I did that quite successfully when I went to Northeastern. I was on a full scholarship from the Commission for the Blind, which is unheard of these days. When I came out of college, what everybody wanted me to do was go to grad school. And they said, you know, we can get get you into Harvard. And I said, no, I'm not smart enough for Harvard. There's no way I want to go to grad school. I just want to work. I started working and I stayed with the same company for 34 years. A lot of that story is is all about risk-taking. Risk-taking is important to you. Right. In reference to what? Just getting out of my comfort zone. When I joined EDS, my modus operandi, starting from about 10 years into this, after I programmed and, and did all kinds of technical stuff for a long time, I teased Jeff because I said, you know, if you and I were contemporaries, we'd probably be coding at the same level, the same kind of stuff, because I was actually programming at the machine level mm-hmm. with machine code. About 10 years into it, I moved to Europe, and that's a whole story unto itself. I told my boss on Tuesday that I wanted to go to Europe, and he said, fine, get on an airplane on Saturday, and you got to start working there on Monday. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and that that was a risky proposition. That was a matter of my wife getting on my case, saying, you never stand up for what you really want. Go in and talk to your boss. Stand up for yourself and say what you really want. So so I, I did, and I called her at that Tuesday. I said, you better start packing. <laughs> Is there, there's no way I can turn my back on this one now. I, oh my God. I mean, I, I, I came in, you know, just guns blazing. And I said, sure, sure, sure. 
certainly that was a lot of risk. Did she want to kick herself or was she excited? How did how did that go? Uh, uh, she, uh, well, she was um, <laughs> probably, probably a little bit of both and scared. I, I mean, what she was most worried about was could we, could we get the cats over there, <laughs> you know, but, oh, um, in, in that in, in short period of time, we had, we had two cats, but got over there. And uh, what I always tried to do was to do the jobs that nobody else wanted to do. And it was, if you're doing a job nobody else wanted to do, I, I wasn't competing with anybody. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, oh. and and there were some pretty cool jobs nobody else wanted to do, and a lot of them were in, in international. And I love to travel. One thing about so many people that I meet, so many blind folks that, that I like, they have an aversion to traveling or, or wow. don't want to don't want to consider moving or whatever. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I absolutely, to me, my ultimate freedom was to be on the road traveling with work it screwed up my personal life big time but when i was traveling with work transportation was not an issue if i wanted to go somewhere i just took a cab company paid for it i had my maximum independence a lot of what i was doing was business development work i ended up working in 35 different countries oh my goodness and it was all places that nobody wanted to go to it was places like russia czechoslovakia Prague, by the way, is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Mm. Uh, I, I got to go to Australia, Germany. I mean, a lot of a lot of Western countries. And a lot of the times, I regretted doing it because nobody, not only did nobody want to do it, but nobody wanted to support what we were doing back home. But I was actually working for a subsidiary uh, of EDS that that um, that was a startup at the time. What I always did when I got into a country that I always formed these great relationships with some of the locals. Not good with language. Get very, very friendly with people that were basically my peers in these foreign countries and, and uh, you know, be the home office guy that would help these people locally be successful with stuff they were doing. My job was to go overseas and implement it. And the people back home were supposed to be the ones supporting me from the standpoint of sending us what it was we were implementing. Mm-hmm. And that was all great, except for the fact that the stuff they sent us never worked. <laughs> The other weird thing about war, you and I talked about this the other day about how I've kind of, you know, had two lives, kind of a sighted life and a blind life. You know, I worked 34 years uh, in a company that I, where I never worked with another disabled person for the whole whole period of time, ever. Mm-hmm. This is all pre-ADA stuff, but I was always able to get what I needed from accommodations because I just, you know, would convince them of what I needed. And it was easier for me to get accommodations prior to the ADA than it was after the ADA because after the ADA everything became kind of the minimum standard whereas before I would just tell them what I wanted and Mm -hmm. I always always got what I wanted. Around the year 2000 I really started to relate to the blindness community. My entree into the blindness community and into really doing a lot of work with the blindness community was the Boston Red Sox of all things Hmm. and I tell this funny story too about about how he met Brian and Kim Charlson. You know, the Red Sox weren't, uh, they weren't accommodating people with visual disabilities at all. So I found another blind lawyer and somehow we got into the Red Sox and we started talking to them, developed a dialogue with them. I put together a PowerPoint presentation on why people with visual disabilities are good customers like everybody else. Advocacy, advocacy. Yeah, it was it was grassroots advocacy, mm-hmm. and um, I got invited the next year to uh, address their training staff. And every year things got better, and things are absolutely great. There was even a, a, a structured negotiation between uh, ACB and Major League Baseball 
that was a direct outgrowth of that work that I had started with the Red Sox. So when I started the work with the Red Sox, I got involved with the Bay State Council of the Blind. And this lawyer kept telling me, you know, there's this this couple, Kim and Brian Charleston, that you got to keep, that, that you need to meet. And I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll meet him when I meet him. And all of a sudden, one day my phone rings and it's Kim Charleston saying, hi, Rick, this is Kim Charleston. I'm the director of the Talking Book Library. Uh, I see that you're not registered for services with us. Um, and I said, Kim, stop there. I said, you know, there is no way that the director of the Talking Book Library calls people. So what do you really want? <laughs> <laughs> and this is a true to God story. And, 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 I, and I heard this long pause and she goes, oh, I heard you're good at getting Red Sox tickets. And I said, sure. You know, so we got Red Sox tickets. We went to a game, hit it off. I really got immersed in uh, in advocacy um, around that period of time. So my whole thought process around 2000 was to start paying back. I had had a very, very fr- fruitful career. I made a lot of, you know, made good money. I created my a lot of my own success. My wife used to tell me that my disability wasn't, wasn't a handicap. I used it as a weapon. Oh, gosh. Uh, and uh, which was which was kind of a kind of a of, of a weird thing that to say, but I just knew how to how to disarm situations by talking about my disability and getting people to feel comfortable with me. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of consulting work, and you know, of course, you know, you always had to convince them as a consultant that that you know you were capable of doing doing what you were there to do, and uh, you know, was always able to do that with humor because transportation had been such an important thing to me because so much of the reason why I traveled was because of transportation. I developed a real affinity for um, wanting to help with paratransit advocacy. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing a lot of work in, in the paratransit advocacy area. So so this professional career, it kid me about being the businessman and all this kind of stuff. And, and I'm, you know, I, I, I tease Brian and Kim because I, I, I look at the world or I, I, I look at things that ACB does as a business, for, you know, rather than, um, I mean, I see the advocacy piece, but I also understand that there's a business behind all this too. I'm forever telling folks that any extreme is not good. Total advocacy without without looking at it as a business is bad. And if you just looked at it totally as a business and, and minimize the advocacy, that that would be bad too, obviously. <laughs> the business side of me is, is uh, let's cut through all of the baloney. Let's get down mm-hmm. to what the core issues are. Let's deal with the core issues. There are things that, that um, I don't have a lot of patience for. I hate Robert's Rules of Order. Mm-hmm. I absolutely detest them because, mm-hmm. um, to me, it's just a you know, bu- bureaucratic way of doing stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's let's get to the bottom line let's, and let's move on. And, and uh, you know, but part, part of taking risk, too, is you know, make decisions. And if you make a mistake, learn from it and just, you know, move on. I mean, the only time it's bad to make a mistake is when you make the same mistake over and over and over. What else is important to you now? Family and working on myself. Family, I've got two, two daughters uh, that I'm very proud of. And uh, they both still live at home. As I said earlier, I mean, a lot of my professional career took me uh, away from from home and away from the family. So there's a lot of a lot of things happening there to um, to deal with some of those uh, mm-hmm. some of those scars that may be out there. And you say working on yourself. What do you want to talk about any of of that or what that means for you now? Yeah, sure. One of the things that I've uh, 
um, and I'm not at, at all ashamed to talk about this. I mean, uh, depression has been a struggle for me for many, many years. When Kylie was born, when my first daughter was born, I became clinically depressed almost immediately. It's like I was, I was the one with the postpartum. Mm -hmm. It was bizarre. The way I came out of it was with meds. I'm realizing now probably more clearly than I than I ever have that part of this whole re recovery process um, is is a lot more than just, just meds. Uh, I'm doing a lot of introspection. I'm just mm -hmm. looking in, inside, looking looking real deep inside, trying to figure out, um, you know, what, what some of uh, why I, I feel certain things and, 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 all, and all of this and, and, and sorting it out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have my good days and bad days. Um, oh, welcome to the human race. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there's a, there's a lot of folks that you know, depression is so common with so mm -hmm. many folks. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so um, many feel alone in it. Yeah, so many feel alone in it, and and I know my parents suffered. My mom suffered from it too, but it wasn't anything that that really got diagnosed back then. It was more of a stigma. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was like you know. I mean, these people are having a nervous breakdown. Let's put them away. I mean, let's. let's I mean, they would disappear. You would never see these mm -hmm. folks ever again. You know, and it was. I'm mm -hmm. sure all it was was depression in very many cases. Now I've got to take better care of myself, mm -hmm. you know? and 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 I know that, and various people have have kind of brought that realization home to me and uh, at the end of the day I've got some some work to do and I'm doing it luckily I've got the time to do it um, in a way wow exciting I mean there are a lot of people who know they need to take better care of self but they can't for whatever reason there's not enough time there's not enough energy there's too much energy being needed to take care of someone else or some others and it sounds to me in a big way like this is something you get to look forward to. Yeah, I absolutely get to look forward to it. And I could build all the excuses why not to do it too, why I can't do it. It's what I have to do. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just it's just what I have to do. Um, and and I, I look at it from a very from a very positive, you know, point of view because I my whole life is I've always landed on my feet. I mean, everything I've done, I've always landed on my feet. Whatever situation I find myself in, I have the confidence to know that it'll work out to the good at, at the end. It may not be real fun. There may be a lot of pain involved. I'll get to a good place. And I, I feel the same way uh, about finding myself. It's really, a, you know, all about finding myself at the moment. So, And I read a quote last night that said, it's not about finding ourselves. It's about creating ourselves. Is there you go. Thank you, Rick. I've often said that the real courage in life is to find and be our true self. Thank you for finding that courage in you and reminding us all of more that is possible. And thank you for being my guest this week on the Inside Track as together we share defining moments from there to here. I'm Debbie Hazelton.